Hey there, John McWhorter. How are you? Hi, Glenn. How are you? Doing well. Glenn Lowry. This is The Glenn Show. We used to be at bloggingheads.tv. Now we're at the Glenn Lowry Show YouTube channel and at substack, substack.com, glennlowry.substack.com, The Glenn Show. John McWhorter is my conversation partner. Every other week, we've been doing this for quite a while. Uh, we enjoy each other's company. We do. Have to be able to share each other's company, but we also enjoy enjoy this uh, this uh, electronic friendship and this uh, regular conversation. So welcome. We do. Back Thank to you. The conversation. What's up? What's up? You you just back from Brighton Beach? Is that what you told me? <laughs> yeah, I was in Brighton Beach and I was having some lunch and. Sometimes Russians are like English speakers in that they think that everybody speaks their language. You know how if you speak English, you feel like everybody speaks English. Sometimes Russians can be that way, especially if it's where everybody's Russian. And so apparently I'm Chechen or something. And so the oh. waiter, <laughs> they just kept firing away. And but you I did understand some of it. I was able to understand about 60%, and I was able to say what I wanted. And you know, after I say a couple of things, they must know. But, you know, basically, Russian is so much the thing in Brighton Beach that you'd forget you were in America. So I I managed, you know, I actually got the food that I asked for and managed to say what I thought of it. But it was it was it was a strain. So that was my that was my afternoon. I think I saw that movie, uh, the movie in Brighton Beach where everybody was speaking Russian. It's like a different country. It's you can live a life there and not speak English. It's it's neat. You know, really, it's like you're walking into into a whole different place. But yeah, the, the language part can be a challenge sometimes. How is it that you, you are a linguist and you love languages, but how is it that you're able to understand half or more of uh, a colloquial conversation in Russian? Have well, first of all, in, in that situation, it's a very limited context. Like you always know what they're talking about. You don't have to worry that they're going to go off and start talking about quantum physics. And then I've always had a great fondness for that language. I, I am proud to say I taught it to myself. It's hard. I don't speak it with any kind of fluency, but I'm better at understanding because I've, I've worked at that within that narrow context. And yet for me, languages are like Mount Everest. It's like you're climbing it and you try to get good at it. And my girlfriend is Russian. And so she could kind of intermediate. And so, you know, I, I have gotten better because of her. So it was it was an adventure. Now, I remember reading a, a column of yours where you were recommending software, not that we are in the commercial business of advertising anybody's product, but you were very passionate about, you say, it's not Babel, but it is. Glossica. Glossica is the tool. Glossica, as in glossary, Glossica? Yeah, G-L-O-S-S-I-K-A. I did a Times column about it, and Russian Glossica actually had a lot to do with the fact that I could do what I did today. You know, it doesn't make you perfect, but it gets it into your ear. It, it makes you used to hearing it spoken at speed, and it and really is I, a great language learning tool. If I followed you, it was like 1,500 sentences, the same sentences substantially in every language that Glossica is teaching. And what you do is you listen, repeat, and memorize those sentences. And lo, before too long, you've got the gist of the language. But no declension, no conjugation, no massive uh, glossary of, uh, of mm-hmm. uh, you know. And, you know, the truth, the truth about Glossica is, and I hate to say this because Michael Campbell, who has put it together, isn't going to like it. And I have huge admiration for him. If you're going to know a language well, there are things that you have to learn where that that method alone isn't going to do it. Like with Russian, 
you need to know some endings. You need to know some irregularities. And just now it's 3,000 sentences, but the, the 5,000. But the sentences alone are not going to teach you those intricacies completely. You need some side help. You know, I've studied those things myself. But in order to feel how to use those endings and to hear them in passing and to see how they really use them, Glossica is excellent. It works better with some languages than others. But still, Glossica is good with any language after you've gotten to a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Glossica made it so that I could pretend to speak Russian at that table. That's exactly what it did. And, you know, then after a while, if you want to get really good, then you just have to sit there and immerse yourself for real, but it will allow you to get halfway there. It's fun. Good product. You are revealing yourself to be an interesting man. John Hamilton McWhorter V. You are revealing yourself to be a cosmopolitan. Uh, I'm, I'm not obsessive and, and strange is what I am, but it's nice to have a different experience, you know, it's just to try something out for an afternoon and get stuck on the highway. But that is what that is what happened. Well, my closest brush with the Russian language is that uh, I used to be a chess player in my youth and coming up in Chicago, there was something called the Chess Pavilion. Uh, at the Oak Street Beach on the near north side of Chicago, right on the water. And it was a uh, very nice shaded game spot with chess boards etched into the concrete. And people would bring mm. in pieces, they'd open the pieces and they'd just play. And all these Eastern Europeans, including Russians, would congregate there because, you know, chess is a pastime in that part it's of culture the world. for them, yeah. And they would curse each other and uh, gesticulate and vituperate and all of that kind of stuff because they were really passionate about the game, you know, calling each other's name, you know, getting all riled up about it. And given the fact that a little bit of money was riding on every one of these contests, you could see how uh, temperatures would get high. And I would stand there and watch these guys. And every now and then I'd challenge somebody to play a game. It wasn't very good, but uh, it was it was a glimpse of another another world and another way of life. Still, it, yeah, I can yeah, still it's the, the, the components of the culture are different and you have to be there to to get that sense of it. Yeah, that's exactly the sort of thing thing I mean. Your girlfriend is Russian. People are going to be interested in that, John, since you're now, uh, you know, you know, you're eligible. You're one of the most eligible bachelors walking around, I should think. <laughs> she is Russian. <laughs> she is Russian. And um I'm going to leave it there for now, but she, <laughs> okay, she's Russian not, and um, it, it's, go, it's going well. It's going well. My lovely wife has stepped out. Otherwise, I would bring her on set so that she <laughs> could show that I, even though I'm an old man, I've got a very beautiful younger wife. <laughs> uh, she's a wonderful <laughs> partner. I'm so fortunate to have her in my life. Lawan Lowry, my wife, of Bernie Sanders supporter, as I have revealed here in the past, it's a mixed marriage over here, but we it is. To, That's right. We, we, we <laughs> learn how to manage it. But this is our wedding anniversary weekend. Four well, years. How long has it been? Five years. Four, four years. Four of years. Blissful matrimony, uh, except for the political arguments about the merits of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're uh, we're ensconced in a beautiful uh, suite here at the Chatham Bars Inn on the Atlantic Ocean in Chatham, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and are enjoying uh, enjoying a getaway, hmm. uh, but not getting away from Glenn and John at Blogging Heads. So, what are we talking about, John? What's on your mind, man? And you know what? I I know something. We briefly touched on 
on this show probably two months ago, the study or the two studies that have come out recently that point up through empirical documentation that most of the people who lived in red line districts back in the 30s and 40s were white, which is something I don't think everybody knew. I certainly didn't know that. The way the story is usually told, you would think that these you know, these lenders drew these red lines around the black neighborhoods. That's what I always thought. The idea being you don't lend to them. But actually, it wasn't that. It was about it was about socioeconomics. And when those lines were drawn, most of the people who were in those neighborhoods were white. And what one of the studies that um, is getting around shows, and this is something that I also I had no idea about this, is that the. um the um because i've been stuck in traffic on on, on blanking the housing loan federal home loan something the other one the the other one the the one that begins with h um there are two and the the other one which was just as important that begins with a federal agency to promote home ownership amongst american citizens federal housing agency was kind of stingy but then the home owners loan corporation they were much more generous they actually gave a lot of loans to black people who are within those districts and so all this is to say that it's an interesting statistic 82 percent of the people in red line districts in 10 major american cities in the 30s and 40s were white on the other hand in those same districts overall 97 percent of black people lived in those districts in the 30s and 40s. So it's not that there wasn't a problem. You know, almost everybody black lived in there. But most of the people in the districts were not black. And that's a lot of people, too. I never knew that. And I wrote about that in The Times. What do you think? What do you think of that? What do you make of that? Well, it's a coincidence in that just last week here at the Glenn Show, my guest was uh, David Kaiser. He's a historian who's uh, taught at the Naval War College most of his career and also at uh, Williams College. He's now in retirement, but he still uh, follows the historical scholarship very closely. And he was he was making a broader argument uh, because it's not just redlining, but also aspects of the GI Bill, uh, aspects of the New Deal, uh, aspects of the Wagner Act on uh, labor relations and whatnot that are all said yep. to have been biased against blacks. And he wanted to clarify uh, that, well, blacks were advers- adversely affected to some degree by some of these actions, but the interpretation that they were uh, intended to disadvantage blacks specifically uh, is is not accurate. And about the redlining, he, he, he pointed out exactly what you've just said, which is that if you look at the areas that were wet, redlined, um, the, the majority of the population living in those districts were white. But he also noticed that the tendency to evaluate a district as worthy of being redlined depended, among other things, on the proportion of the population living there that was black. So if blacks started moving into a white area, that made it more likely that the area as a whole would end up getting redlined, even though most of the people in the redlined area would be white people. So there is a little something to the idea that there was an anti-black element in the redlining process, but it can it can easily be over it can easily be overstated. I mean, he made some other points too that I thought were interesting. Like, and this is one that's made a lot out of your colleague at Columbia, Ira Katznelson, in his book. When When affirmative action was white, white makes this point. 
which is that this original Social Security Act, which created the uh, wage and hour uh, regulation and uh, provided Social Security taxes, but also benefits and uh, uh, minimum wage and uh, so forth, um, didn't apply to domestic workers and to farm laborers. And that this was in part a response to pressure from Southern politicians who were part of the Democratic coalition in Congress that passed the Social Security Act. And that's been interpreted as an anti-Black action. But just like in the redlining case, most of the people actually employed in those occupations were white. Most of the farm laborers, although Blacks were overrepresented in terms of population, but most of the people affected were white. And the motivation- Walker Evans pictures, right, yeah. And the motivation was was not specifically anti-black as much as it was administrative difficulty, at least as perceived by the enacting Congress, of getting compliance for occupations where there might be a lot of turnover and, and, uh, you know, people moving around and whatnot, like farm labor and a lot of interpersonal relationships, a very informal labor market, the domestic uh, service market. If you got somebody taking care of your kids and cleaning your house. That's very hard to get the paper trail on that and to make sure that people are actually complying with the regulation. So the reasons for exemption were were somehow more benign than simply we don't want black people to be benefiting from this legislation. And it's interesting because a certain kind of person and that person is not uncommon will hear that and they'll say it must be that those bigoted Dixiecrats and they were we know these are outright bigots. These bigoted Dixiecrats must have said we don't want black people to get help. Is it really true that these Dixocrats were so concerned about these bureaucratic issues as opposed to keeping their, quote unquote, Negras down? And I, I'd be interested to know whether there's proof either way. I also think that that kind of person would also say what this shows is that what they were interested in was keeping black people down. And as far as they were concerned, it was a nakedly classist era, too. And they didn't care if it also dragged down a lot of white people without much power. That's the sense I get from a certain kind of person. And I wonder what an expert would say to them. Well, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I'll make a stab at it. I think it's the tail wagging the dog. The idea that, for example, the Wagner Act, this is labor relations, makes it harder for unions to organize in the southern states. Uh, and you could interpret that as an anti-black move to keep the blacks out of unions. But a stronger historical argument, according to David Kaiser, is that the Southern uh, political and business leaders wanted to make the South a union-free region so that they could attract capital away from the Northeast and the Midwest, where most of the industrial activity was concentrated. They wanted to be what Southeast Asia eventually became in a globalized world, a place where you would run for lower wages and a more business-friendly uh, condi- uh, you know, legal and tax conditions. They were trying to grow. That was their strategy. The strategy for promoting economic growth in the region was to make it very attractive for industry to locate there relative to other parts of the country. Now, that strategy did have the consequence in making unions difficult to organize of leaving black workers who were overly present in the southern region relative to other regions in the country less likely to be in unions. That's one consequence of their strategy. But it certainly is the tail wagging the dog to imagine that the entire economic growth strategy of that region was a conspiracy to keep black people 
from being in unions. It was really much more complicated than that. If you like, it was a class, not a race issue, and blacks being more frequently amongst the lower working classes were disproportionately disadvantaged by uh, by that strategy. Something like that. Yeah. And so what it means is that to these people, the fact that these things had disproportionate effect on black people didn't matter. So if they knew, they didn't care. And you can certainly see that as a kind of racism in itself. And, you know, there may have been some people who, you know, kind of liked that, among other things, this, you know, kept the black people in their place. But it wasn't the prime. It wasn't the prime mover of these efforts. I find things like that interesting because they demonstrate once again that this stuff is complicated. And I am bemused by the kind of resistance that you get when you try to talk about things like this. Like my column was replete with indications that racism still deeply affected the lives of the people, black people who were redlined, that there was even some racism within who got a loan and who didn't. That, you know, I'm not saying that racism played no part, but I'm just saying that to think of socioeconomics is not meaningless and that the socioeconomics was not so insignificant as to be merely parenthetical or merely a footnote, that it mattered, that this stuff is complicated. And well, I'm not claiming that I was I wasn't chased out of the room for saying this, but some of the response was rather vigorous. And I was especially surprised by Thomas Sugru. Thomas Sugru, who's written really good work. I know Thomas Sugru, the historian. Uh, where is he at NYU now? He used to be at the University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, Detroit. The, what does he call it? Uh, the Origins of the Urban Crisis. That's his big book about Detroit. Mm-hmm. It's one of, it's and, one of the and best. And he on your column? And then he also did that really great book about civil rights in the North. And so you learn about the civil rights movement in, in New Rochelle as opposed to Birmingham. And yeah, he um, and I'm not calling him out. This is not the, the thing that we do. But he did a tweet, one of those long tweets, he did like nine parts, where he not in a nasty way, just says that I selectively picked data from those academic articles and that I am. I think it's fair to say he's claiming that I said it was all class and not race or something close to it. And that's and then he brings up statistics about the racial aspect of it. And quite simply, I repeat, I'm not calling him out. I I am a great admirer of his, whether or not he is of mine. I've heard from him before. I know that he he thinks some things I do are okay, but he didn't like this. And I can't help thinking that and I I don't know. I don't know because I don't know him. It's as if if you say anything but racism you have sinned, that there's something sacrosanct, even despite the facts. And I hate to say that in my piece, there is so much genuflecting, I hate to put it that way, but there is so much saying that racism is part of it too, that it gets in the way of the flow of the piece. Okay, John, I think we got it. And what I want to say, I mean, I do know uh, Tom Sugru. I've known him for a long time and admire him greatly as you do and admire that book, which won the Bancroft Prize in U.S. history. It's the highest prize you can get as an American historian. Uh, And he's a, he's a man of the left. He's a progressive. He's, you know, and, and, uh, he thinks that historical narrative about what happened in mid 20th century and the Rust Belt, you know, to the big American cities in the Northeast and the Midwest is a fundamental thing. And he thinks that a lack of uh, a more capacious social welfare vision of a more of a of a New Deal kind of commitment to, uh, you know, cushioning uh, the ill effects of economic change on on working people is a part of the of the problem. I mean, this is Tom Segrew. This is his politics. Here's my suspicion about what's going on. 
which is, and it's not only going to be him, uh, and I would regard him as among the more balanced, open-minded, level-headed, seriously I, I think so, yeah. participant. Yeah, and you agree with me about that. Um, what I think is going on is you're at the New York Times, and you now have a megaphone that is way big. I can't even make a appropriate gesture as to how big <laughs> the megaphone is. And uh, you happen to be a linguist who sits on the faculty at Columbia University and, you know, you write books and the books are good or bad. Whoever reads them has their view, but I think they're good. Uh, and you write about linguistics and your scholarly work and whatnot. But what you are not is a sociologist. What you are not is a political scientist. What you are not is a historian. And nevertheless, the perch that you occupy gives you the authority to pronounce. And your pronouncers have a certain uh, gravity simply because of where they're coming from. And people will be influenced by what you say. So when you attempt to shift the narrative <coughs> from the settled understanding a la Ira Katz-Nelson when affirmative action was white to something less friendly to arguments for affirmative action protecting blacks or less friendly to arguments for reparations for the crimes of the past or whatever, that's, those are fighting words. We, we're now fighting over how we're going to tell the story. And who are you? Uh, again, I don't know that this is in Tom's mind, but it could be. It, it's certainly a plausible account challenging you in a long tweet, which might be seen by 100,000 people, is a way of, of, uh, of raising the question, does he really have the authority to tell us how we're supposed to think about this? And you know what? You know, on the one hand, my standard response to that is if I were if I were preaching the gospel as a linguist and praising the things that the usual people say, none of those people would have any problem with that. That would be fine. Nobody would say, wait a minute, who is he to talk about racism and anti-racism as perfect opposites? Who is he to say that deindustrialization is why the ghettos went to hell? Who is he to say that? He's just a linguist. How can he evaluate the scholarship? Nobody would say that. Then on the other hand, <laughs> you know, that's that's the answer. But then on the other hand, I must admit, if these people were in the time saying things about language and, you know, they say, well, I've read a lot of the books, you know, I've, I've thought about this, but they right. don't have a degree. Would I not say if they weren't preaching my gospel, how dare this architect, how dare this social scientist preach about linguistics when they don't really know. I'm not sure I'm that noble. So I, right. get, where, I get where they're coming from. I, I get it. But my first answer, I think, really does apply. If I were saying the right stuff, and I'm not calling out Sugru, but if I were saying the right stuff, those people would think that I'm a polymath who does his reading and is sharing, you know, what he knows. Oh, he, 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 he ranges so widely. But if I don't preach the gospel, then I'm just ignorant. And I think that's a little simplistic, but then again, I can also imagine being them. So, yeah, I get it. I get where he's coming from. Yeah, the pulpit. Yeah, I see that. Now, let me ask you a question, a personal question. So, <laughs> uh, you you ascend to a perch where you have a, a megaphone that's bigger than anything I can indicate with a hand signal. Uh, preaching out to the world about stuff you care about. Um, do you get letters? Do they let people write in uh, to comment on the uh, on the things that you post uh, at the time? Honestly, this is, you know, I, I don't know if I'm the, the naive soul that some of these people think, but there are things about me that are kind of childlike. I've never looked at any of the comments. There is an email that they set up at the Times where people can send 
comments. There is no comment section. Uh-huh. I can see some people, some people are disappointed that they can't watch me getting hung out to dry or watch people fight in a comment section. And I'm not sure why they don't have a comment section, to be honest. I've been so busy writing. I haven't asked them. That. Well, one, but, excuse me, one, one speculation is that the comments would be positive and the newspaper doesn't want to give the readers the opportunity to show just how popular the things are that you're saying, not to protect you from uh, negative comments, but to prevent positive comments from reinforcing your message. Is is that a sinister, you know, kind of thought or could there be something to it? You know, the truth is I'm not interested in the ongoing commentary about the things I write for the mundane reason that I'm too busy writing the next thing. I don't have time to pay pay attention. And so I I don't go looking it up. And I do get feedback, you know, on social media. You get you get it's not hard to figure out what my Columbia email is. So I get feedback and I do read it unless I can see that it's a screed. If I feel that it's a screed, people should know that I just I glaze right over and I delete it. But a lot of the the feedback is interesting, but I don't obsess over it because I have this basically this job this this second job where i have to always be writing a new piece so i don't know i maybe i need to take a peek at what some of these comments have been okay so you don't have time to read comments because you're too busy writing the next thing and when you have to produce two 1500 word columns a week that's a very plausible claim yeah just can't can't be bothered but um yeah but you know, Somebody like Sue Grew will write something on Twitter. And if I catch it, I'm I'm interested. You know, I want to know what Tom Sugru thinks, but I don't think that that column that I wrote cherry-picked from those articles. I just think that it looks a certain way for me to highlight some things in the article more than others. Although what I highlighted is what those articles were meant to highlight. I wasn't taking something out of, you know, some paragraph in the middle. That's what these social scientists working with quantitative data were trying to say. And they were not right-wingers. So I enjoyed writing that because it was learning something new. I was trying to share something new. Okay. This continues the interrogation of John Hamilton McWhorter V about (laughs) uh, his uh, role at the New York Times column that he's producing. Uh, How is your memoir coming, by the way? uh, My memoir is coming, although I have had to extend the delivery date to December 15th on the memoir. Uh, I am... Uh, I am uh, grappling with the core, uh, with the core um, issues of uh, the enemy within, uh, and you know we you, we could go into it. Are you trying to change the subject from talking about you to talking about me? Well, yeah, because we've done we've done enough me, and I really am interested in the the memoir. It's not something I could imagine doing. It's it's an intriguing project for me. Um, okay, so uh, this is the very short version of the guts of the matter. Um, so I've changed the title. The title used to be Changing My Mind. And the, the narrative uh, uh, organizing principle uh, was about knowledge, self-knowledge, uh, the, the humility to be able to acknowledge that you're wrong. I mean, combating against uh, the biases of attending only to evidence that reinforces your view, the um, uh, warm comfort that you get when you're in the cell with the other people who believe like you do when you're all reaffirming each other and whatnot, changing your mind, breaking away from that, losing friends like the Thurnstroms, my dear friends, when I 
broke away from that and whatnot, or Clarence Thomas and Shelby Steele and people like that, my dear, not as dear as the Thurnsons, people to whom I was relatively close when I shifted uh, some of my views about uh, matters, what, you know, uh, changing my mind. <clears throat> it, there was a lot of meta, a lot of, you know, how do you think about thinking? There was a lot of thinking about thinking. I was very in a mood, and I am in a mood of, you know, some of these uh, mathematical logic puzzles. Um, the barber shaves everyone in the town who does not shave himself. Who shaves the barber? This kind of thing, you know. Well, the barber can't shave himself because he only shaves people who don't shave themselves. But if he doesn't shave himself, then he has to be shaved, you know. So this is a this is a paradox. Oh, of that's yeah. It's a paradox of self-reference, you know, and there's actually theorems and mathematical logic about how you can exploit self-reference to sh- prove that some things can't be proven. And it was all very meta. It was all it was all very it was all very meta changing my mind. And, you know, I was going to make the story. Well, I used to be on the left and I was on the right then I was on the left and whatnot. I wanted to get back in good with the with the people. That's why I did it. I was questioning my motives. Did I change my mind about religion? Yes, I changed my mind about religion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I've not got a new title. It's called The Enemy Within. And I'm going deeper, John, and maybe that's why I haven't really committed myself fully to a narrative. I obviously have to give the publishers something and they have editors, as you know, and, you know, they'll be back and forth and we'll we'll work with it. So I got to give them something to work with. I, I have a December 15th delivery date and that's an extension. And so, you know, you know how it goes. And, you know, I'm, I'm, what do you want? Um, Malcolm, our kind of archetype, that angry college student, he's not going to read your book. What do you want? Um, enough giving people names, but let's imagine there's a guy who's two years out of college. He's a black guy and he's kind of sitting on the fence. He's, um, called, he's a law student and he's the kind of black law student who's impatient with the kind of dialogue that he hears around him. And that is more common than many people think. And he picks up your memoir. What do you want Anthony to learn? I gave him a name. Sorry. All right. What do you want Anthony to learn? <sighs> I want him to know that living in good faith is the hardest possible thing that you can do. Uh, What do you mean in good faith? Living in good faith. Okay, so... The cover story and the real story. So, you know, I could give examples from my own biography. These are things I've spoken of in public before, so I won't be necessarily revealing anything. Um, My former wife, she's dead now, Linda, Dr. Linda Datcher Lowry and I married in 1983. And our first child, Glenn, is born in 1989. And in between, um, our marriage went through a lot of changes. I was philandering and messing around. There was public scandal when I was caught in a relationship with a woman who accused me of assaulting her. Linda was humiliated. We were on the rocks, didn't know if the marriage was going to survive. I had a terrible drug addiction problem in the aftermath of the 
other scandals and whatnot, and it wasn't clear at all if we were going to come out of it whole. Um, she becomes pregnant at some point in this terrible, rocky up and down, and she loses the pregnancy because of a fibroid problem that was later dealt with through surgery. Yeah, that's her. It's later dealt with through surgery, and then Glenn came into the world, and Nehemiah came into the world, and they're in their 30s now. And the thing of it is, man, you know, I had a cover story, and the cover story was, oh, what was us? But the real story was that I was relieved that that pregnancy didn't come to term because I didn't want the responsibility. I wasn't committed to the marriage. And I just went through a dog and pony show and a kind of a set of acts and representations that were just false to This is not living in good faith. Not when somebody is dependent upon you for the foundation of their life and when you're making commitments to people that you, in the back of your mind, don't have any intention of fulfilling. Real story in the cover story. Um, my religious conversion. I mean, there is a very heavy dose of, um, I don't know, beneficent self-delusion in the credulity with which I embraced some of the practice and the doctrine, which, you know, if I allowed my critical faculties to have full sway, would have would have kept me relatively more agnostic and, and relatively less uh, fervent. Um, I would have understood these problems to be the extremely difficult. I'm talking about problems of faith. I, I'm talking about problems of fundamental spiritual commitment, the extremely difficult challenges to human intellectual integrity that they are. I don't dismiss religion with the back of my hand, no more so than I now, in retrospect, can credit the uh, the the kind of almost childish credulity with which I embrace some of these practices. Childlike, childlike is a better word. Um, my political machinations, right? I mean, so the cover story in the '90s is conservatives don't. This is with the Thurnstroms, man. I break with the Thurnstrom, Abigail, may she rest in peace, and Stephen Thurnstrom. Uh, because they don't care. They don't really care about the black folk in the ghetto. They, they may be right in their particular criticisms of what we now call woke sensibility and then was the politically correct anti-racist, uh, you know, mainstream. They may be right in their criticisms of the Jesse Jacksons of the world and whatnot, their criticisms of affirmative action and their et cetera. But they don't really care about the people. They're prepared to turn their backs on them. They're, you know, I mean, I arrogated to myself a kind of high handedness, a kind of moral superiority that carries all the way through it. it, it, it it's 15 years of my life between 1995 and 2010, where I'm just on this rampage against these indifferent conservatives. I blast my friends and colleagues at the American Enterprise Institute, which included people like Charles Murray, who perhaps deserved the criticisms that he was getting about the bell curve, but that didn't deserve the vitriol and the kind of smug, backhanded, dismissive uh, tone that I brought to, you know, to some of the pieces I put in the New Republic about, about Charles Murray. I, I, I end up calling uh, James Q. Wilson, the great political scientist at Harvard and uh, then out in California at uh, uh, Pepperdine, he was at UCLA for a while, and then he, he, he finally finished his career at Pepperdine. 
I mean, I, I say he died with blood on his hands. He is indeed the architect of broken windows theories about policing. He is indeed the architect of uh, we need more people in prison in order to control the crime problem. He was a very vigorous defender of a muscular anti-crime uh, strategy. Uh, he wrote a book called The Moral Sense in which you could accuse him of, you know, kind of uh, smug moralizing and whatnot. He was a uh, a disciple in some ways of Edward, Edward Banfield, the unheavenly city, and so on. This is Jim Wilson. He was a great political scientist, massive uh, uh, footprint in terms of his impact on policy and on uh, thinking about American politics. But I just, you know, so who was this guy? It was just too easy to do. I'm talking about the cover story and the real story. I'm talking about integrity and living in good faith intellectually. I'm talking about not taking the easy, self-aggrandizing path, being prepared to say that you're wrong about something, et cetera. And, and um, you know, I'm out there in the wilderness from the liberals because I'm this bad boy, black conservative. Then I'm discredited as this joke because I've fallen on my face and I'm in, you know, uh, drug rehabilitation and whatnot, even after I had been constantly criticizing black society for the failures in the behavioral matrix, taking care of children, you know, sexual profligacy, uh, the lack of responsibility, criminal behavior and whatnot. And I'm and I'm caught up in this. And, um, you know, I just so desperately want to try to find a place to stand where I cannot feel ashamed of myself, where I cannot indeed be held accountable for the things that I am indeed accountable for. And I end up uh, taking this easy route. And it was a very easy route to take. The easy route is, yeah, I used to be a black conservative, but I wasn't going to be a token to these people. Everybody had some place to go when the music stopped. They were going to uh, Jerusalem or they were going to Dublin uh, or they were going to Rome or they were, you know, they had they had their ethnicities, but I couldn't have mine. They wouldn't let me be black, which I knew was going to appeal to the to the uh liberals who had cast me aside as a as a uh, Uncle Tom and, you know, uh, uh, what did uh, Martin Kilson once referred to me publicly as a pathetic black mascot of the right. You know, I knew that I could redeem myself with them by uh, making this move, but it, it, I wasn't being true to myself and I definitely wasn't being fair to my uh, friends and associates on the moderate right. I mean, not the far right, but the moderate right, who were uh, the who were often at the butt end of, of my my criticisms. I don't know if you've ever read that piece on the Thurnstroms that I put in the Atlantic in 1997. It's seven thousand words long. Well, I did. I did read it by chapter, and it tears them a new asshole in every paragraph. I did read it. It's one of the reasons I loved you so much in that era. I remember what was, I think, the second to last paragraph where you actually nailed down that what they miss is the compassion. Um, I remember that very well. And I know that was the end of you and them. That was they they didn't like that one. And yeah, I remember it. My yeah. formulation was they they uh, worry about the uh, figment of the pigment, you know, black you know, you think that your skin color is reality. You're a black guy. And so you walk around, that's all you see. And I think they should be worried about the enigma of the stigma. Of the stigma. Yes. Yeah. yes. Not the figment of the pigment. That was, that was good. Oh, yeah. It was clever as hell. It was clever as hell. That was and because, very good. because I could, you know, wield my 
command over various social science literatures and, and whatnot, I could give it a respectable, more than a patina, I could make it respectable. I could make it a respectable criticism, but it was in a way meaner and, and more personal than it needed to be. It was not only in the service of correcting the record. They have a book, the book says certain things. I'm not sure those things are entirely true, but is it a way of pumping myself up as this guy who had broken away and trying to draw the accolades from the crowd in a certain way, playing to the crowd, which is the question that I was going to ask you about whether or not you ever feel tempted to play to what you imagine your audience now that you have a much bigger audience with your time column. But I'm not trying to escape the spotlight here. I'm just saying that's what I mean by living life in good faith. That's that's for someone who has opportunity, uh, who has uh, talent, uh, and and who is uh, got uh, ability to influence public discourse about important matters? Uh, living in good faith is 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 absolutely fundamental. We're not running for office as intellectuals. That's not our. It's not a popularity contest. It, you know, something like that. It's it's something like that. But in any case, I got a ton of cover stories that I ripped the cover off of. This is interesting. There's a there's a stringency that's necessary when you're doing this sort of thing. I hear I hear what you mean. I wouldn't use the phrase good faith because that's just not my phrase. But I, I see what you mean. Motorcycle. Let me just tell you, it's Jean Paul Sartre's phrase. I'm. I'm it's, this is. A, oh, you mean that? Yeah. Oh, okay. That, you're, that's you're quite, that's where that. the phrase comes from. I'm not sure. I mean exactly that, but that's my motivation. It's funny. I just got a dose of him from Louis Manan's new book about um about mid 20th century intellectual and artistic movements. Okay, I see I see what you mean. That's that's a kind of a definition 3.0. But I I know what you mean. Um This is Orwell talking to the Communist Party and during the uh, Spanish Civil War if you know what I mean. I mean, you know, he's a man of the left. He's definitely anti-fascist, but it's like can we get real with what's actually happening in our own ranks and things of this kind? It's not there's not a perfect fit between the two, but that's the kind of integrity that I want to extol. The, the kind my of sen- good yeah, faith my- that I advocate. Yeah, uh, my sense in writing is always you steer between two poles. If it's too easy, probably there's something wrong with it. You're supposed to be questioning the world. You're supposed to be questioning yourself. There are things that I write sometimes in like a first draft, to the extent that I do what we would call a first draft. And the, I think to my, there's something that there's a feeling that's halfway between having a, an eyelash behind your contact lens and wanting to throw up a little bit. And I know when I get that feeling <laughs> that I'm writing something I don't mean. And it's often the sort of thing where, yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to have that left person understand that I'm not the terrible person they've often been told. And I I think to myself, but wait a minute, I don't believe this. And so that person is just going to have to not like me that, that impulse. But then on the other hand, to not be writing just to throw bombs and trying to get people upset because that's wrong too. That makes me want to throw up a little bit as well. So it's just striking that middle road, but I'm perplexed by some people where it seems that they seem to genuinely think that, especially when you're writing about race, that if it feels easy and if it feels good and if it feels tribal, it's 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 good. It's the good with a capital G. That it's virtue to go really pretentious in the sense of Aristotle, that it's excellence when it's easy, 
tribal, makes you feel good, is probably personal rather than abstract. I distrust that. Sometimes things that are all for those things are the good. They are virtue. But just as often, you could have the truth is more elusive than the person might think. And it would require a little bit more work to find it, I often feel. But I, I see what you mean. I see how you might. It's funny. I met you during that middle phase. I wouldn't have. You played the part. Well, I wouldn't have known that to an extent you weren't being yourself. Like when you and I ran up against each other at Harvard back in, I think, 03. Yeah. I didn't know that. And I'm not saying you were putting on an act, but I didn't know that you were wearing a different costume than what you would now think of as your true self. And yeah, that must've taken a lot of work. Yeah. Well, I wasn't really consciously aware of, I am now going to act the following. It's only in retrospect that it becomes clear to me that, that, that is, uh, that is what was going on. I mean, in the feelings, it's, it's not just ideas. It's also, you know, embodying the role. It, it's like, the the energy that comes from it and, and self righteousness is a drug, man. Self righteousness is a very that you think you're right, the other people are wrong, and you're gonna finally tell them. And especially when you're a convert, especially when you come in from the opposite end of the thing, oh, yeah. you're now you're now in there, and you the scales have fallen from my eyes. I I know where this McWhorter and uh, losing the race is coming from because I've been there. But that is a dead end for this McWhorter, and he's using his own black people as butts to. Uh, stepping on them, stepping stones to his own, you know, you know, and et, et cetera. And, uh, and besides, everybody's against McWhorter. Doesn't it feel good to be on the team for a change instead of being the one in the box? You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> <laughs> it's tempting. It feels good, that sort of thing. I, I completely, I completely get that. You know, it's interesting, though, because there is a little social media stream that's saying that it's interesting. Whenever I say anything in the Times that is leftish, they're thinking that, the Times is stepfording me in some way that I'm I'm currying to my new bosses so that I don't get fired, especially because on right, language right. I sound lefter than I do on race. But no, it's not that it's that I'm writing what I really believe. But people are on the watch for us in that sense. And they should be. You know, are you saying what you really believe? And we should we should try as hard as we can to do it. That's that's for the memoir to be focused on that, for that to be a fulcrum. I can't wait to read it. That's um the enemy within. The the enemy within, you know, as a kind of political stance about racial inequality and what's wrong with black people and families in disarray and too much criminal behavior and school failure and no attachment to the workforce and you know, uh raunchy hip hop and a kind of, you know, a kind of self-defeating behavioral uh trap. And we got to get above it, you know, self-help. You know, we got to rise to higher, rise above it, rise to higher ground, right? you know, that, that enemy within, which when uh, decoupled from politics, that is to say, what did you have in mind for the government to do? Which policies were you actually advocating? How do you understand the long history, going back to slavery, of the circumstances of African-Americans? What's your political economy? What's your larger macro vision? All you've got is a wine. All you've got is a scold. Uh, enemy within. When you're walking around with an enemy within, uh, when you're walking around with, and and this is one of the most disturbing things that I've really discovered about myself here. And when I used to, uh, I taught at the University of Michigan in the late 1970s. I knew the uh, west side of Detroit, northwest Detroit, like the back of my hand. 
I knew Detroit. I, I mean, I knew where the clubs were on Eight Mile, of course. You know, you go and you listen to music. Uh, I knew where the Detroit Museum of Art was, where there would be some good concerts and there was a, a nice exhibit every now and then. I knew where uh, Wayne State University is and all that kind of stuff in Detroit, where you could go to a seminar and whatnot. I knew where you could cop reefer. I knew where the women were available at the desert. <laughs> And I, you know, and I and I knew the ins and outs of the back alleys of uh, the east side of Detroit and whatnot. I mean, and here's the thing. I was proud of being able to go into those neighborhoods, into those public housing projects, into those clubs, into those brothels, into those drug dens and, and get by. I could negotiate it because I knew a little bit about it coming up in Chicago, because even though we lived in a middle-class neighborhood, as is true in many big cities, I'm sure it was true in Philadelphia. You didn't have to go very far before you got to the hood, you know, you got to the heart. It's a fine line. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, uh, adventuresome uh, uh, person who's, you know, wants to know what's going on in the world and is prepared to walk on the wild side a little bit might end up being, we would talk about code switching in, in one of our recent conversations. This is cold switching to a very high level, okay? I was proud of that. But the thing is, John, <laughs> it was a way in which I counteracted the sense of betraying Black people and betraying where I came from by moving into this world of Brie and Chablis and six-syllable words and, you know, establishment uh, thing and professor at Harvard and whatever. But I wanted to still be, what was that phrase you used as a title of one of your books? Authentically Black. Yes, yes. Now, it's one thing for somebody on the outside to say, oh, you're a conservative, you're not authentically Black. Oh, you read Russian uh, literature, you're not authentically Black. Oh, you speak like this, you're not authentically Black. It's another thing to think that if you couldn't, uh, arrange for a uh, a night on the town in the darkest part of town uh, without getting robbed. And, with, you know, if you couldn't do that, you weren't authentically black. I was actually associating subconsciously in any case. I don't know how explicitly conscious I was associating being black, not having lost it, not having lost the contact with my people with the least honorable and, and most morally uh, suspect and most exploitative. I mean, these relationships were not, you know, I'm the one that came with the hundred dollar bills. You understand what I'm saying? This was terrible kind of corruption. Okay. And uh, I, I flew right above it. I, it was something that I, I was completely unaccountable uh, uh, on this hypocrisy and, you know, and this kind of, uh, uh, self-hatred, a self-hatred that could spill over to a kind of hatred of your own people. What you see in them that you see in yourself and you can't bear to look in the mirror, but you point the finger kind of thing like that. You know something, Glenn, before we finish, I want to throw something out here because everything you're saying is bringing to mind to me certain things. And you're talking about the the 90s and the aughts. Notice the things you were talking about. Affirmative action. Is hip-hop bad? What's wrong with Jesse Jackson? Notice how those things are beginning to sound a little antique as the sorts of things that you were expected to talk about when you were a quote-unquote black conservative back in that time. That's when I come in. I come in at the tail end of that. Those things. Notice that the terms of the discussion have changed these days. The big challenge now is not affirmative action, good or bad. That that's in there, but it's not nearly what it was in 1998. 
Today, our responsibility as people who think about race is to answer the question, how do we dismantle systemic racism? And with that term being used, and of course, the question is, what is systemic racism? You and I are responsible for having a response to that question put that way, because if we don't, we're not doing our job these days. So 1998, Black people and the family. Why are there so many single Black moms? Well, there aren't quite as many now, and welfare is not now what it was then. It's a new set. And sometimes I feel like I'm, I want to make sure that we're adequate to answering that question. How do we dismantle systemic racism? Because that's what people want to know now. And there are now people who are pushing 40 who don't remember when everybody was sitting around talking about whether hip hop is bad or not. They want to know how do you dismantle systemic racism? I'm trying to formulate answers to that question because notice that sometimes you and I are thinking about the stuff we think about. And here comes this other person who wants to know, well, how do you dismantle systemic racism? Do you feel that you have ready smackdown answers to that question? I'm still working them out because I'm not sure I know what systemic racism is. I'm not sure I think that the concept is validly limbed, L-I-M-N-E-D. But I I think we need to be able to answer that question, not in this discussion, but still, because that's everything at this point. Well, I'll say two things here. First of all, no, I I don't know the answer. How do we dismantle? I mean, I, I don't have it. I'll say two things. One is I, I just assigned uh, the first writing assignment for the semester to my class on uh, race and inequality in America. It's an upper level economics undergraduate course. And so I have these papers, 32 of them, and I'm reading them. And one, of course, I'm not going to name the student, but she knows who she is. Tears into me in this paper the. I give them my book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, to read and a few other things from other people. And I say, let's take an assessment of how it is that we're starting this course in terms of framing the problem. We have persistent racial inequality into the 21st century. There are all these different statistical indicators of that. We've had a civil rights movement, and that's 50 years back. Uh, We're now in a new era. Everything is different. Uh, the demographics are different. The economy is different. Globalization is here. Nationalism is a force in uh, in the politics of nations on several continents. Uh, we've had and now uh, have had, and he's gone, Donald Trump, black, white reaction, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how do you feel that these readings have equipped you to deal with the thing? And the student writes brilliantly. Basically, you let me down, prof. I, I thought we were going to get to the bottom of systemic racism. All you got, this all you got, all you got is wagging your finger at the mothers who got children out of wedlock and pointing out that the Asians are scoring high because they work hard and, uh, you know, that mass incarceration isn't what it used to be because the crime has gone down and policing is not everything that Black Lives Matter says. That's all you got? You, you can't tell me how to solve the great moral problem that confronts this country. I'm not sure I should take you seriously. Now, she didn't quite put it exactly like that but that that's how i felt after i got to reading her paper you are answering you are addressing the issue that i'm talking about yeah exactly and and i don't have an answer and moreover 
in my little pieces in City Journal and Quillette, where in some of the speeches that I've given that a person could find easily by just going into Google, I, in virtue of not having an answer, have dismissed the question. Systemic racism ain't shit. That's what I've been saying. <laughs> so anyway, systemic racism is just a bunch of rhetorical mumbo jumbo. Ibram X. Kendi is just blowing smoke. Nicole had a joke, et cetera. I mean, not getting personal to these people, but, you know, they do come up because they're prominent. But what I'm saying is I've been giving it the back of my hand. I've been saying history is more, and it is. History is more complicated than these jokers are letting on. History is not a playbook for your political program. History is nuanced and subtle and difficult to know and, and hard to fathom. But, but I am a confessing here now to you, <laughs> as you put the question, and in light of my desire to tell uh, Anthony, is that what you call him? That, He's uh, an Anthony, yes. That he should live in good faith, that he should live a life of intellectual integrity, that he should be prepared to admit that he's wrong. And when he doesn't know something, he should be able to say that he knows it. He should be suspicious of his own motives for doing things. If it feels too comfortable, it might not be right. It might just be the path of least resistance. I have taken the path of least resistance on the question that you put before us of what do we do about systemic racism? Because I'm denying the, you know. Prove to me that the system was the one that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm dodging the question. We need to try that question next time because, you know, the whole thing, what is systemic racism? My question is, should we be calling it racism? You know, if there's an it still, why are we using yes. that term? And is it some one thing that we can do something about? And if it isn't, should there be one term? And, and you know, I'm really not certain as to what the answers to those questions are. But yes, we need to be able, we need to talk to Simone. Your student's name is Simone in my head. That's not to Simone. That's fine. Yeah. Simone has a genuine question. She, Simone also has got real guts. I'm, I'm admiring Simone for pulling that on you. She got but, the highest grade I could give. See, see, because Simone it was brilliant. It was, it was, it was, it hurt. It hurt like hell to read that paper. It was brilliant which is a sign that it was probably real. Yeah. Simone deserves answers. So next time um, we don't need to keep calling this person this, but let's, let's, let's address Simone because she deserves a real answer. I think. Well, John, I'm glad that you're my friend. Uh, and you know, me too. Glenn. In the context of our friendship, you can help to hold me accountable to my own highest intellectual standards. And I, I think we got a wrap here on this conversation. I think it kind of uh, closes itself and it points the way forward. And uh, we're hoping that listeners will uh, continue to follow. This will be two weeks before John and I post again. And in that conversation, we're going to take this one on more seriously uh, than we have done to date. We'll call it a reply to Simone. Yes. A reply to Simone, indeed. Okay, Glenn. All right, my friend. Take care. We'll Talk see you. To you soon. Right on. 